the book of 2 Timothy. If you don't have a Bible, the, uh, the scripture references will come up on the screen above the stage. And there are a few uh, extra copies of the Bible, so if you'd like your own copy as well, I see the girls already waving at me, they're ready at the back. Uh, just put a hand up if you'd like to have a, a Bible brought right to you. There's a couple of hands down this way. So we're looking at 2 Timothy. We're going to focus in particular on on probably just two verses, but we'll read a little chunk of 2 Timothy chapter 1. Two Timothy chapter one. We'll start at verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience. As night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm now persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love and self-discipline. So that's the portion of scripture that we're going to spend a a few moments in this morning. This is quite a remarkable book of the Bible. Uh, For this reason, Paul is imprisoned. Now, many of his letters are written when he is in one prison or another. However, this is the last letter he writes before he's executed, uh, before he dies. Uh, It's thought that perhaps he was now rather than in some comfortable house arrest where he could kind of come and go as he pleased, but there was a a guard who just made sure that he didn't do a runner, uh, that he's now in a a dark, dank, gloomy cell or dungeon with perhaps just a small kind of opening, which is the only source of light, only only source of air. And uh, he says there, well, night and day I constantly remember you. This guy is staying awake. This guy is not in any sort of comfort. And he's aware that his death is likely to take place very soon. So near the end of the letter in in chapter 4, verse 6, reading onwards from there, he, he writes this, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Here's a man who is facing his own death, facing it kind of remarkably well. It even crosses his mind to write a letter to encourage uh, Timothy, who was to start with his apprentice. He, He visited Lystra, and then when returning to Lystra, having kind of preached the gospel and seen some people won to Christ. He notices this young lad, Timothy, maybe in his early 20s, something like that, and he takes Timothy with him. And then Timothy becomes, as it were, his apprentice, almost like learning the trade. As a father would teach a son, Timothy is almost observing, learning, watching, just to see how Paul handles things and kind of learning to walk in his footsteps. So he becomes a co-worker, no longer just tagging along with Paul. Paul says, right, I'm going to leave you uh, in Ephesus. Please, uh, he kind of appoints Uh, Timothy, to lead and look after that church. Now, as as Paul is soon to die, almost this is a a final handing on of the baton, Timothy, keep running the race. I've fought the fight, I've run the race, my time is up. You keep heading into all that God has got for you. And so he says this phrase here in in verse 6, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. 
doesn't actually say what that gift is. We can, we can make some guesses, I suppose, that it could be a, a kind of courageous leadership. He says in verse 8, Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord. Perhaps what he's getting at is a kind of courage or leadership that was imparted to him uh, some years before. Or a gift of teaching. A lot of what Paul has to do in Ephesus is teach sound doctrine. So maybe those are uh, the gifts. We're not actually... We're not actually told. This letter, however, is not just of interest because of what Paul said to Timothy. It's what God is saying to us as well. And we know from 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, that to each a manifestation of the Spirit has been given. To each and every one who's in Christ, filled with the Spirit, has been given a manifestation of the Spirit. Now, that might mean something uh, miraculous. That might mean something that... um, you wouldn't see naturally, the, the gift of prophecy, um, the gift of healing, praying for people to be healed, the gift of faith, could be the, the gift of tongues and interpretations, things that aren't kind of innate to humans. It can be uh, other gifts that God inspires, which can be in some respects described as regular gifts, le- gifts of leadership, uh, gifts of hospitality gifts of contributing to the needs of other people. All of these are gifts of the Holy Spirit. One and the same Spirit gives a whole variety of gifts to each and every one of us. Paul's writing to Timothy to say, look, God has called you to continue making a difference on this planet. I'm about to go, but you're going to be here. God has called you to make a difference. I say God has called you to make a difference. God has called each and every one of us to be involved in his kingdom so he equips us with his spirit for things that he has particularly prepared for us. It could be, like I say, a a natural or a a regular uh, ability like leadership, but God by his spirit blows on it to make it actually something that's far more than could just be produced naturally. Or supernatural gifts of the spirit that he wants to Um, that he's distributed amongst us. So Paul's message message to Timothy is in a sense, well, God has lighted this flame. God has caused this flame to to come alive, but it needs maintaining and it needs fuel. It needs fuel. It needs air. If There seems to be now a a trend, um, just in case the Russians turn off the gas supply, to to go for one of these... um, wood-burning or multi-fuel-burning stoves that take up about a fifth of your front room, but it's great because it will keep you warm uh, if the gas turns off. Um, Those kind of fires, or open fires perhaps, need fuel, they need air, and they need lighting. So you get some newspaper, you kind of scrunch it up, you get it in there, you arrange the fuel, you make sure the air supply is, uh, is available, and you light a match and the flame burns, and it all kind of totally roar as the oxygen flows through it, all the, uh, the, the fuel is consumed, a lot of heat, a lot of light. Let's say you do that at 7 o'clock in the evening, and then probably it won't be too long before it all starts to reduce. You're still getting a lot of warmth out of it. There's a bit of a, 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 a tremendous glow. The flames have started to die down. Maybe that's about 9. And then if you don't put any more fuel on it, or if you don't allow kind of air to keep uh, feeding it, that flame will, by the end of the evening, become ash that is perhaps kind of glowing. There's still some life there, um, but it's, it's died down a lot. The, Paul, the point that Paul seems to be making here is not necessarily, oh, Timothy, you've let your flame die out. He's making the point, as it were, any fire needs feeding. Any flame needs more fuel it needs more oxygen, it needs tending, it needs attention, so that it continues to provide a lot of light and a lot of heat uh, for, the whole, for the whole house. In, in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5, verse 19, almost the, the same point is, is put in a negative. So rather than fan into flame, it says there in 1 Thessalonians 5:19. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Or don't quench the Spirit. There's ways in which we can just quench it. We can just allow things to die down. God has started a flame. God has lit something. 
but it's not been tended, so it's just shrunk. That seems to be what Paul is encouraging uh, Timothy to do. Don't put out that fire. Keep it going. Keep it fed. Keep it stirred. Stoke it. Tend to it. Make sure that flame um, stays ablaze. Now, there are plenty of reasons uh, why or how the spirit can be quenched or those flames can die down. One big reason, and I think this is a big reason for Timothy, is various ways in which timidity can come in. Caution or fear or kind of intimidation one way or another. And if there's any... It's easy when you preach just to kind of get so focused on any particular verse that you almost want to say, this is the most important verse for the church this year to understand. And uh, maybe that would be a slight exaggeration, but that's almost like what I feel like saying. It's like timidity... I think, a massive problem in the life of the church universally. That we don't know what we've got, and that what we've got is allowed just to sink down, become glowing embers, but no longer an absolute vibrant furnace of uh, of heat and energy. For Timothy, I think there were several reasons why he could have succumbed to Timothy to timidity, the timidity of Timothy. Um, Number one, uh, Emperor Nero is hanging about in the Roman Empire at the time, and uh, he doesn't like Christians that much. So in AD 64, there was a huge fire in Rome that totally um, destroyed large swathes of that city. The fire went on for days and days and a massive chunk of the city was burned. It would be the equivalent of saying like all of Crooks, Broomhill and Walkley are gone and Hillsborough is on its last legs and kind of watch out the rest of you. Um, Massive fire. Nero took that opportunity to then redevelop the city, restructure it, redesign it and, uh, and build it up in a different format. So, a rumour started to develop that maybe he had started the fires or allowed the fires to continue on purpose. Nero needed, therefore, a scapegoat, and he found a scapegoat in the Christian community. This bunch of slightly weird people um, with some links to Judaism but, and who don't worship the emperor... Um, They were the scapegoat. They were, therefore, um, treated mercilessly so that one Roman historian has described how Christians were forced to wear the hide of animals and were therefore torn to death by wild dogs. Many Christians were crucified and other Christians were set on fire in order to provide illumination at night time. All of this was done, or a lot of it was done, as a, as a form of entertainment or to amusement of people looking on. Now imagine yourself as a Christian in Rome or part of the Roman Empire to then know what that would kind of feel like. That's a cause for some intimidation. And obviously, Timothy is aware of that. Timothy is also aware, like I said, Paul is in prison. Paul is in prison and is likely to die. Paul is is Timothy's spiritual father, as it were. Here here is the man who kind of recognized this rough diamond of a guy in Lystra and kind of brought him alongside. And as you read a letter like this, you can't help but notice just the amount of affection that Paul has for Timothy. He describes him here, I think he describes him elsewhere, as my dear son. And then goes on to say, look, I am remembering you night and day in my prayers. I'm recalling your tears. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. There's a lot of affection between these two men. They've gone through a lot together. And there's a close link between them 
And Paul has really nurtured and encouraged the gifting that is in Timothy. Timothy's kind of benefited so much from Paul's counsel and wisdom and encouragement and teaching, and now Paul is going to die. A cause for much timidity for for Timothy. Now, not exactly going it alone, but he's not kind of in, in someone else's wings as he once was. He doesn't quite have maybe the same sense of, of protection as he once did when he and Paul were both together. So timidity, intimidation, wanting to shrink back. Also, third reason for timidity, for, Paul, uh, for Timothy. Oh, that's going to catch me throughout this sermon. Um, were the false teachers that were basically stirring up trouble uh, in Ephesus and elsewhere. So we find out in 2 Timothy 2 verse 17, uh, Paul describes a couple of them in this way. He says, Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. And most of these letters in the New Testament are written to try and correct false teaching. Teachers who've come in and they're trying to get a following for themselves, detracting attention from Jesus, watering down the gospel, just making Jesus into one of a few kind of impressive uh, spirit beings. You can go to Jesus for that, but you can go other directions too. And uh, the whole, whole pool, as it were, of the church just get muddied with deception and lies and misguided ideas about how we come to know Christ. And that's why Paul's saying time and time again, um, uh, reminding us of the gospel. He says in no uncertain terms, for example, in Galatians, um, in the beginning of Galatians chapter 1, he says in no uncertain terms in verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. You might think, crumbs, that's a bit harsh. But that's what was happening. People just getting taken out. People getting drawn away from the truth. People getting drawn away from the cross. Kind of wild ideas uh, robbing people of the one and only way to know Jesus. The one and only way to be forgiven of sin all by grace, by faith in Christ, not by our own works. But all of that was potentially being eroded. Timothy had to kind of combat the teaching that they were bringing all the time and try and help people come through. Fourth reason that Timothy had timidity was something actually to do with his personal temperament. He was, it would seem, in some way prone to this. So in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12, uh, obviously in, in Paul's previous letter some years earlier, he writes there, don't let, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Paul knows Timothy well. He understands what he's like. He knows where he's coming from. He knows that there is this tendency within Timothy to look down to kind of allow himself to be looked down upon or to look down upon himself when he writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 10. He writes this to the Corinthian church, If Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should refuse to accept him, send him on his way in peace, so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. So Paul there is almost preparing the way, just preparing the Corinthians to accept him well. Um, There are some guys, you don't get the impression they would need that kind of introduction. You don't get the impression that Paul would have needed that. You certainly don't get the impression that someone like Apollos would have needed that, because it says in Acts how he was sort of fervent in spirit. He was like perhaps a bit more of a go-getter, Timothy, on the other hand, maybe is just slightly more prone to introspection, to to kind of shrinking back a little bit. Paul knows that, so he's writing this letter. Now for us, 
thank the Lord, we don't face a Nero. Uh, We don't face that kind of opposition or hostility um, that must have been sheerly terrifying. However, we do face hostility in this world. I would suggest that anyone who is a Christian and is currently school-aged will know something about hostility. Even friends, you know, you, you, you get on on one level, but if a conversation about faith comes up, it's tricky because you'll know that one way or another, with a bit of jest perhaps, they will just have a go at you. Uh, they'll just look down on that. They'll kind of think, well, if, you, if you're kind of really impressive in, in sport, then you'll gain their respect. But if they find out that you, uh, you love God, or that you're wanting to follow him and serve him in your life, they will think you are weak. They'll think that you need some crutch to try and get you through life. They'll think less of you as a result. I'd say that's the case probably for people at school. I'd say probably the same in the workplace, where perhaps there can be more civility outwardly, but at the same time, um, we can often come across that kind of sense of, they think I'm a plonker. And uh, I was greatly impressed recently to hear an example, someone in the church who I feel just shared an example of the way in which they did not quench the Holy Spirit, but fanned the Holy Spirit into flame. And it went something like this. Some of you may have heard this. Um, in fact, it was Tom Lee. I might as well just say that rather than try and kind of say it in this really weird, uh, anonymous way. Um, at work, uh, working alongside a colleague, and that colleague is kind of really laid low and feeling rough. And Tom's aware of that and just kind of thinking, well, what shall I do? How shall I handle this? And the Holy Spirit begins to prompt him, go and pray for him, go and pray, offer to pray for this guy. Then goes to find him in another room. He was laying down. I hope this doesn't embarrass you too much, but I'm going to make it. Lying down in another room and uh, clearly not that great. Kind of turns to go, but just feel, still feels that prompting of the Holy Spirit. Go on, go and pray for him. So offers to go and pray, and then very quickly gets the, no, no, uh, it'll be fine, I'll get better soon. Oh, no, all right, okay, fine. But what that was, was kind of facing down what we can kind of expect sometimes. We can anticipate that kind of response. We can kind of therefore think, well, I don't know, well, I'll offer to pray for someone at church because we're kind of reading from the same page. But to pray for someone or to even make mention of the fact um, that I believe God has power to heal, well, that is risky business. I, I don't know how this is going to go. There is some hostility. There can be opposition. There can be that kind of lashback, backlash, um, that means that we want to, to sort of shrink back from things where maybe actually the Spirit is saying, go on, go on, I'm with you, I'm with you. Even if it doesn't go well, I'm with you and I'm pleased with you. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Fan into flame. So we can know worldly, the world's hostility. We can know disappointments in this world as well. Again, not like Paul is just about to die, but we can still know disappointment. So on Friday night, we're gathered together and we're praying, this Friday just gone, we were praying um, for a church in Leeds, Ch- uh, Leeds Gateway, a church that we, uh, we relate with. As leaders, we sometimes meet up with Tony Smith and some of the other guys that lead that church. Email comes through early in the week saying, um, this year we've really seen some breakthroughs in God, we've really seen uh, some healings, and we've seen some breakthroughs in evangelism, seeing people get saved. And then he just went on to list the number of people who have just suddenly become um, afflicted by pretty serious conditions. So the guy who leads the church, his daughter-in-law is needing chemotherapy. Someone else's wife and newborn child are in hospital in different wards... Uh, one with an infection, one having difficulty breathing, I think, and that's another elder of the church. Uh, then someone else having a stroke here that um, obviously is difficult for them and has repercussions for others. You can think, what's going on here? Progress on the one hand, immediately there's opposition. Immediately there's a backlash, or sometimes I like to say for some reason a lashback, but I'm sure it is a backlash. There's opposition. You know, sometimes we've, we've prayed before, uh, as a church, some months ago, for leaders of other churches. We've prayed for a guy, Dave Holden, who leads a church in Sidcup, 
guy gets cancer in their church, Dave makes a strong, uh, kind of strongly with the Spirit's help, leads the church in praying for that guy to be healed. What happens? Dave, the leader, gets wiped out by chronic fatigue for five months. And so we're praying for them as a church. Now, as it happens, now um, Dave is totally back on his feet and God has really blessed him and been speaking to him through that time. Uh, so God's purposes have been working out. But sometimes, again, we see that pattern repeated time and time again. We can be kind of like trying to diagnose, is this spiritual attack? doesn't really matter what it is. It's a cause for timidity. It could be a reason for the church to shrinking back. Oh, we won't go for healing now. We won't go for evangelistic events. We won't go for that kind of stuff. Why? Because sometimes it just doesn't work out that well. And, uh, and, and, and I, I was feeling really confident in that, but now I've got disappointed and something has just knocked the wind out of my sails and I'm going to watch football instead. And so these dis- disappointments are something that we know something about as well. False teaching that affected Timothy. How does it affect us? Now, in my mind, I, I kind of have this image of false teachers, which is totally unhelpful, but I'll share it anyway. Uh, like a false teacher is kind of some evil-looking guy with a pencil moustache in a black cape uh, who kind of like comes into the church. And you know a mile off he's a wally. Uh, and he's just going to bring lies, you know. No false teacher kind of announces themselves. My name is Idioticus. I have fabricated some new ideas. I can't even speak. Um, and I would like to uh, distract you entirely from the genuine gospel. Please, would you come over here for distraction and lies after the meeting? I'd love to share with you. Um, it's, far more, it's far more subtle than that. Kind of all false teaching, probably, at the end of the day, has a note of plausibility about it. It sounds like it could be right, but it's a, it's a distortion. And that's that can cause so much trouble in the life of a church that sometimes we can be aware of kind of contentious issues culturally and in the life of the church and it can bring a lot of confusion. Maybe in in Christian academic circles, there's a lot of debates. People take different positions and kind of argue back and forth and the rest of us can kind of sit back and think, well, if really educated and impressive Christian theologians can't work this one out, if they're just arguing about it all the time, I give up. On that issue, I don't care. And so from that point of controversy, we just get confused if we're not careful. We can just get confused. And if we get confused, then we can just lack confidence in the Bible and think, well, I don't know. I don't don't know what the Bible really means on that one. That's why it's so important Last week, for instance, that we're hearing, what does the Bible teach for husbands and wives? What does the Bible teach about men and women? Because in the world and in the church, huge, huge source of controversy. And therefore, we could draw a conclusion, oh, well, whatever. We'll just, we'll just find our own way. We won't, we won't seek the Bible. So that can come in, a kind of lack of confidence. What happens? Just get timid. And so we're looking last week at maybe men in particular who can just feel timid because biblically, they're just not sure. What am I supposed to actually be? What am I supposed to do? I, I don't want to be a, a tyrant, but uh, I'll go this way instead. I'll just be very passive. This is what's all going on. Cause of timidity. And then as well, for some of us, personal temperament, temperament or disposition can be an obstacle like it was for Timothy. Something else to to push through. You know, for Timothy, in his life, it mentions here how he benefited massively from the sincere faith of his mother and grandmother. I don't think he benefited massively from the sincere faith of his father. Acts 16 says how his mother was a believer and that his father was a Greek and, by implication, not a believer. And so, therefore, in his upbringing... He's got that tension as he's walking on in faith with God. What's his relationship with, like with his father, who clearly doesn't think the same? What is that like for you? If you're stepping out in, in your faith, wanting to grow in God, but you know your family don't agree, 
you know that your family probably think that what you're doing right now is a bit of a waste of time. Just your crutch. Your kind of what gets you through the week. It's tricky. It can just produce timidity. Paul is aware of all these factors that could cause intimidation, and so he reminds Timothy of something that is true of him, but also true of all of us. God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Each one of us has been called by God to make a difference. Whatever opposition, whatever disappointments, whatever spiritual backlashes come, Whatever our own temperament, whatever our own weaknesses, whatever our own disappointments with ourselves, God has called us to make a difference. And God doesn't just call us and then say, get on with it. He calls us and he equips us. And so that's the encouragement for anyone who might be kind of feeling like Timothy was, perhaps, thrust into uncomfortable responsibility feeling isolated and potentially timid. And here comes the word of God. Just remember. Remember your life up until this point. Remember what God has done in your life. Remember how God has brought you through to this point. How maybe he's worked in your family's life, therefore worked in yours. Remember what has happened in the past. Remember that the Spirit of God has been given to you. He does not call us and not equip. And he doesn't call us without any purpose in mind. We might think reading this, Paul writing a letter to Timothy, well, yeah, Paul was a special guy. Timothy, his successor, Timothy was a special guy as well. Therefore, he obviously needed uh, this spirit of power, of love, of self-discipline, because God had plans for him Uh, But the rest of us, we make up uh, a a big kind of appendix in the life of the church and uh, and therefore we'll just kind of tick along. God has called and chosen each and every one of us with a manifestation of the Spirit to each one, saying to each one, I've just brought you right into this place. I've brought you, I've united you to this body, this body of Christ. He's the head. You're a part of his body and he's working through you. He has plans for you, miraculous plans, other plans, plans to make a difference in this world. And so the Spirit of God is not timid. God has not given us a spirit of timidity. Yeah, we might be prone that way. We might feel kind of uh, a bit introspective. Timothy was probably someone who'd be described as an introvert in today's terminology, We might feel, yeah, I'm I'm kind of prone in that direction. I don't always feel confident and brash and exuberant. I don't always feel kind of charismatic in that sense. Hey, look at me, everybody. But no, God has given us a spirit of power, of love, of self-discipline. Let's look at that. He's given us a spirit of power. That's a spirit of power that was demonstrated by Jesus. You kind of think, well, Jesus, he was a special guy. Surely he just did whatever he wanted, uh, as it were, and he had power innate in himself. Jesus, son of God, massive power, and yet he took on human limitation when he walked on the earth. And so it says in Luke 5, verse 17, and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Jesus was reliant on the power of the Lord. He could, he could tell, he had that sensitivity to know, okay, yes, the power of the Lord, the power of the Spirit is now present, for me to pray for the sick and to heal the sick. That was demonstrated by Jesus. Demonstrated by Paul in miraculous ways. Um, preaching in Ephesus. Preaching for a long time in Acts 20. And a young guy called Eutychus, I think, falls out of the window from the third, third story and hits the ground. And, he's, and the scripture makes clear that he was dead when he hit the ground. You can see it there in Acts 20. Paul goes to him and, and prays for him, and he comes to life. Now, why is that in the scripture? 
Is it just so that we kind of remember not to preach for too long? Um, is it just there for us to, to marvel at? Yeah, let's get timid now, but whoa, must have been great then. You can imagine Timothy or maybe some of Timothy's friends saying, oh, do you remember Paul? Do you remember how he, he preached that time for too long? And um, Eutychus fell out the window, went down, and he raised him to life. Those were the days. Uh, I would have just loved to have been there just to see that demonstration of power. Wow. Okay, see you at core group. Um, was that, was it just there? Is that a scripture just there for us to kind of think, oh, isn't that exciting? Isn't that interesting? Someone got raised to life. I was reading this week about an American chap who, um, leader of a church, for many years, totally convinced that anything miraculous from God is not for today. It was all about then. It was all about getting the church going, started off, but thereafter, miraculous stuff, not necessary. Healing, no, that's not going to happen. That was his persuasion. God breaks in by a variety of means, becomes persuaded, fully convinced, this is stuff for today. The spirit of power that was on Jesus is in us. The same things are possible. And so he goes to a conference, 1991, thousands of people at this conference, and he speaks about healing and the miraculous for today. On the front, oh, I don't know if it's the front row or not, a guy called Clement Hubbard died in the meeting. He's just started to speak on this passage about Eutychus being raised to new life. And someone's making signs down the front. Clement's a goner. <laughs> I don't know, I added that bit in. <laughs> um, and he's just like, his mind's racing, having a full-scale panic attack in front of everybody, um, thinking, why is this happening? Is it spiritual attack? Um, is this happening so that the power of God might be demonstrated? Is it happening like with Ananias and Sapphira because he's so displeased God that he's causing damage to the church, he has to be taken home quick? All that's going through his head. Eventually, gathers those people and says, right, let's pray. Takes the body out the back, which is limp, which has, which has turned blue at this point. Takes it out the back. A few people praying. By the, people are calling the paramedics. By the time paramedics arrived, he was up on his feet again. Now, he makes the point in his book, as he's writing about this, I don't know if he died. You know, in effect, I know he turned blue. I know he wasn't breathing. And uh, I know that his body was pretty limp as we carried it out the back of the church. I also know that as a result of that big group of people praying, he walked out of that meeting that day. And we can think, oh, wow, to be there. In Paul's day, or we could read that kind of stuff and just think, oh, to have been there in 1991 at some random conference in the United States when this guy was raised. Like, oh, wow, wouldn't it have been great? And we just think, oh, that's for yesteryear. Like God has given us a spirit of power, a spirit of power that might be demonstrated in the miraculous, not always or not only in the miraculous. When Paul writes to the Colossians, he's, he describes his ministry there in Colossians 1, verse 28. He says, We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Paul is doing what he's doing, which is there about teaching and admonishing doing what God has called him to do, exercising his gift at that time with God's energy that's working in and through him. And when, Paul, uh, when Peter rather, writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, it gives a distinction there, almost divides up every spiritual gift into two categories. Spiritual gifts that involve speaking in one way or another and spiritual gifts that involve uh, serving in one way or another. And it says this, if anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides 
so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. If God has called you to something, and he has, God equips you with something himself. His own spirit, his own energy, his own power. I'm shattered and I have to lead a core group. God's power is there available for you. Not just and only in miraculous ways, but in in all manner of ways in which we're called to serve. Gifts of hospitality. Gifts of giving. Gifts of serving, administering, all the rest of it, as well as gifts of prophecy, healing the sick, are all empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's a spirit of power. It's a spirit of love. It's not enough just to say that God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power. It has to also be a spirit of love. Because the purpose of all of this is serving others. Serving others rather than ourselves. In Acts 8, we see an example of someone who was dead keen on power, but totally for the wrong reasons. It's there in Acts 8, and we see in verse 18, it's this chap called Simon, Simon the sorcerer. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. In there, his heart was wrong before God. Why was it wrong? He was just wanting to serve himself. The scriptures encourage us to eagerly desire the gifts. And the reason we are to eagerly desire the gifts or easily desire certain gifts is so that the body, so that other people, so that we together might be built up. That's the purpose. And so, yes, we're eagerly seeking for spiritual gifts, which is not devoid from eagerly seeking a tender heart that wants to see God break through and bless and strengthen and encourage other people. So 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 and 2, it talks there about, um, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm I'm a noisy gong or I'm a resounding cymbal, which is, Alistair, Izzy, others, no offense to cymbals. They can be played very well. It's almost akin to, imagine uh, after our meeting today, Alistair's been drumming, packs away his cymbals, and he's got an armful of cymbals, goes out of the door, gets to the top of the stairs, stumbles, and they all bang down the stairs to the very bottom. Yeah! Clanging cymbals. Ugly. In that situation. Um, (laughs) That's what's going on here. Power. Great. What about love? That's the spirit that's been given us. The Holy Spirit is the one who's poured out God's love into our hearts. That's how we know anything about the love of Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit has poured it out into us. So a spirit of power, of love, and a spirit of self-discipline. Why? Why self-discipline? I'm quite excited about these verses until I get up to self-discipline. Now that sounds a bit grotty and disappointing. Uh, Why disappointing? Why self-discipline? Well, fanning a flame requires our involvement. It requires gathering fuel. It requires ensuring that old ash is cleared out so that air can still get through. And so, perhaps for some of us, we are persuaded, scripturally, about the power of God for today. We're of a charismatic persuasion. We believe God has given us gifts of the Holy Spirit. We believe in his power to heal, his active presence right now. But there can be a tendency to have 
a kind of passive or theoretical kind of expectation of God. We believe it, and we've got a theoretical and theological agreement. God's got great power. But we can then translate these kind of verses and distort them slightly. So, the scripture says, for this reason, Paul writes to Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. It is so easy to respond, yes, God. Would you fan me into flame? Do you see the point? We can kind of passively wait for God to do something. Fan into flame, passion for your name, let's go and have coffee. And um, our expectation being, "Ah, well, when God wants to, he will. This is saying that we are to fan a flame. Or in Romans 12, verse 11, um, Paul writes there, Uh, Or verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, honour one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. We have a a responsibility. It's not that we can light this flame. It's not that we can create the spark. It's not that we give the energy, as it were. No, that's God. That's God by his spirit coming and equipping us. We have a responsibility to feed this flame, to nurture it, to encourage it, to fan it, to give it more fuel, to keep our spiritual fervour, or to be boiling with, with zeal. And we could say that maybe fuel is about feeding ourselves with the scriptures, about maybe reading about revivals and what God has done in other times, reading the lives of, or, of saints, um, you know, maybe great preachers from the past, or maybe people who've, who've moved in a similar area of gifting, that you feel God has given you. We could say that. We could say, um, what is air? Maybe air is, uh, is, is prayer, kind of getting together and praying together. And you say, well, all right, okay, so this is the crunch. This is the point. We've just got to pray harder, got to read the Bible. Um, it's like every core group discussion can potentially end with it. What should we do? Going to read the Bible more. Um, and we, uh, I joke, but we can get caught up. We can kind of think, oh, self-discipline. And what we do is we make reading the Bible and prayer and meetings, we make that the goal of our lives. We make that the goal of the Christian faith is to pray, is to read the word, is to get together with other Christians. And we make that the goal. And all of a sudden, bang, Life is just turgid because we're so legalistic. Doing those things is good because, as an end in itself, because we're feeding a flame. Because we're fanning a flame. Because it's going somewhere. There's a point to all of this. God wants to make a difference through our lives. We could even say, oh, maybe the goal, therefore, is kind of becoming a mature Christian. Well, even that isn't quite going far enough. Because then all we're doing is kind of evaluating, how am I doing? Where am I at? I've disappointed God again. Oh, dear. Um, And we lose heart. We grow timid. Is this all that life is about? Kind of going through the motions, failing, going through the motions, failing? Well, no. What's the goal? Is kind of realizing God has called me into his kingdom not to spectate but to be boiling with zeal that God might use me God might use us that we might serve the living God that we might see God break out by people getting saved. That we might pray for people and they get healed. 
fan the flame. Self-discipline is not an end in itself. And it will kill us if life is about ticking off the to-do list of prayer, reading the Bible, going to meetings. It will kill us. However, at the same time, our perspective needs to be greater. We realize, now what's, what's, the, ultimate, what's the ultimate aim here? It's the kingdom of God extending. Okay. God has called me and us together to be involved. God has given us his spirit so that he's going to equip us for everything that he calls us to. I am going to fan into flame the gift of God that I'm believing is, has been given to me. God desires that none should perish and that all should have a, a relationship with him and he's chosen us to involve us in his kingdom in this way. So, do you know that? Are you persuaded of this? That God has chosen you? Do you believe that God has given us his Holy Spirit, a spirit of power, of love, of self-discipline? Do you believe that God has given manifestations of the Spirit to each one? Not to kind of jolly ourselves along, but because he wants to build other people up, he wants to build us all up together to see what God wants to do. It's so easy. In preaching, I, it's been interesting in this, in this new year, for me personally, no longer kind of in Colossians, but kind of thinking, okay, God, what do you want to say this week? Um, and it could be anything. It's so easy, it's so tempting just to think, well, let's just... Let's just talk about issues. Let's, let's focus on, on kind of sound teaching. Let's get our theology right. Of course we want to do that. Let's just focus on issues, how, how we live life, uh, etc. and so on. La, la, la. Because we want to protect ourselves from disappointment, from have it, having ever stepped out and expected God to do something above and beyond the ordinary. And um, God wants to do things above and beyond the ordinary. We can't create the spark. We can't light the fire. And that's what God does. We can't decide when and how he will do what he wants to do amongst us as a church. But we can be sure that he wants to. We can be sure he has plans. You can be sure those involve you. Those involve you. Being filled with the Holy Spirit. Fanning into flame the gift that God has given you. Because God wants to make a difference through us. Let's pray.